Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast about managing your insecurity when your girlfriend and your best friend get along too well. This week, a story of tyrannical madness, shepherd cosplay, statues come to life, and one very famous stage direction in The Winter's Tale. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 35, Pursued by a Nightmare. Quit presently the chapel, or resolve you for more amazement. If you can behold it, I'll make the statue move indeed. Descend and take you by the hand. James, would you please deliver in your dulcet tones a plot summary for this fine work of English composition? Well, Will, our play begins in Sicily, ruled by King Leontes and his wife Hermione, who are playing host to Leontes' dear childhood friend Polixenes, the king of Bohemia. Polixenes has been soaking up the sun on an extended vacation and is on the cusp of returning home after nine months away to see his son and attend to matters of state. But the oddly ardent Leontes is desperate to get his friend to stay longer, lamenting the loss of their carefree boyhoods. Leontes turns to the eloquent and very pregnant Hermione to persuade Polixenes to remain in Sicily for a few more days, only to be rudely surprised by how readily he agrees when she asks. In a fit of anger and paranoia, in which he effectively Iagos himself, Leontes tells the audience that he suspects Polixenes must be having an affair with Hermione, and furthermore, that Polixenes must be the father of her unborn child. After an awkward scene with his son and heir Mamilius, whose family resemblance is obvious, he pulls aside the courtier Camillo and orders him to poison Polixenes before he leaves town. Camillo reluctantly agrees, mostly to placate the unhinged king. But he has scruples. He pulls aside Polixenes and urges him to flee, and aids his escape by ordering his own men to open the city gates. Recognizing that betraying Leontes will place him in mortal danger, Camillo follows Polixenes off to Bohemia. Post-haste. Cheated of his revenge, the enraged Leontes decides to accuse Hermione of infidelity and throws her into jail despite widespread dismay at court over his actions. He proposes a trial to confirm his suspicions of the affair and the baby's parentage, and, in another Shakespearean scene worthy of Mori Povich, he sends for a paternity test at the lab of the Oracle of Delphi. Hermione gives birth to a girl while locked away in the dungeon, but receives no mercy, despite the pleas of her dear friend, the audacious Paulina, to Leontes for mercy. This only enrages the king further, who orders Paulina's husband Antigonus to kill the babe by burning her at the stake. He also suggests he'll dash the infant's brains out if his orders aren't followed, and then accuses Antigonus of treason, and of failing to rein in his wife to boot. The horrified lords ultimately persuade him merely to send Antigonus abroad to abandon the girl in the wild to die, which will... Definitely a much better outcome. <laughs> yeah, I suppose between the three, maybe. Though being eaten alive by birds, which they talk about quite graphically, also doesn't sound awesome. Yeah. With Antigonus gone and the arrival of news back from the Oracle, Leontes orders the court proceedings to begin, where his wife is accused of adultery and of conspiring with Polixenes to usurp the throne. But Leontes won't take no for an answer. When he reads the oracle statement that his wife, Polixenes, and Camillo are all innocent, that he is a jealous tyrant, and that the king will have no heir until his abandoned daughter is brought home, he refuses to accept it. Then, at a critical moment, news arrives that his son Mamilius has died, due to a languishing illness brought on by the strain of his mother's suffering. Naturally, Hermione faints from grief and anguish, and dies soon thereafter, provoking much mourning, regret, sackcloth, and ashes from Leontes. Meanwhile, Antigonus decides to abandon Hermione's newborn daughter on the Bohemian coast. Now, Bardfly's listeners are very good at geography, Will, and they are probably aware that Bohemia is a landlocked region. But these are small details in the Shakespeare expanded universe, Will. <laughs> details, details. After seeing Hermione in a dream in which she orders him to name the child Perdita, Antigonus places Perdita on the beach with a bunch of gold and jewels to signal her noble lineage, and is then chased off and mauled by a bear in one of the most famous stage directions in theater. Not to worry, however, a shepherd and his son comically stumble onto the stage and rescue Perdita, and witness Antigonus' ship going down in a storm with all souls lost. Then, in a great smash-cut, fast-forward sequence, time walks out onto the stage to tell us that 16 years have passed. 
Polixenes is still ruling Bohemia with Camillo at his side and is preoccupied by his son Florizel's infatuation with a young shepherdess named, can you guess, Will? Perdita! He and Camillo sneak off in disguise to attend a sheep-shearing festival where Florizel and Perdita will be. It looks like your typical weekend gathering. Ribald ballads, pickpockets, and an angry father who breaks character and objects when Florizel proposes to Perdita while in disguise as a fellow shepherd. In keeping with the generally well-adjusted temperaments of the royal men in the play, Polixenes threatens the old shepherd with death for his effrontery and orders Florizel to stay away from Perdita, only for Camilla to intervene once again by helping the two escape to Sicily via ship, along with the old shepherd and the shepherd's son. Back in Sicily, Leontes remains in a deep depression with no heir and no queen. Paulina continues to maintain that he should remain single forever because of the wrong he did to Hermione. Then the Bohemians arrive. First, Florizel and Perdita, who pretend to be on a mission from Polixenes, then by Polixenes and Camilla. The two kings reconcile, and gradually all is revealed, with Leontes joyously welcoming Perdita as his daughter. Then, in a bravura final scene, Leontes, Polixenes, Camillo, Florizel, and Perdita all go to Paulina's house, where a statue of Hermione has been erected. Amid Leontes' shame and sadness when confronted with the likeness of his dead wife, the laws of time and space bend, and the statue miraculously comes to life, shocking everyone. Perdita and Florizel get engaged, and everyone celebrates, though the consequences of the harsh journey are lost on no one. And Will, such is the resolution of The Winter's Tale by William Shakespeare. Thank you, James, for that uh, delightful plot summary of this quite twisted and wild play. I wanted to ask and lead off our discussion by turning to the character of Leontes. What is going on with this guy? We are introduced to him, and he seems like he's enjoying hosting his best friend in town. And then almost immediately, there is a sharp turn towards paranoia, jealousy, and murderous rage. What are we supposed to make of that? How quickly it happens? What's at the root of it? What's going on with this character? I had a really strong reaction to him. I'm curious what yours was as you were reading the the first three acts of the play, which all center around basically his anger, jealousy, and madness. Yeah, it's, I think, kind of the linchpin of the whole play, right? And I think if you're, I mean, obviously we're reading it, we're not watching it, but I think if you're watching this one, how much you believe Leontes' insanely quick turn to, you know, to being a jealous madman is going to basically determine whether or not the play works for you. So I guess I have a theory about what could be going on that would make it make sense. And I think obviously, you know, in Shakespeare, he has to move the plot along, right? So for the plot of the play to work, he does need Leontes to make this turn very quickly. Mm-hmm. But in terms of how we can believe Leontes's sudden heel turn, my theory about this is that it's the joke that you made in the intro, right? Where... What feels like is happening here is, you know, Leontes has been reunited with his friend from his youth, like his, his seemingly his very best friend, the person he grew up with, closest friend from childhood, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the first time that he's seen him seemingly in many years. And presumably these nine months are also the first time that Hermione and Polixenes have met. And... Basically, what I got out of this, and I'm interested to know if this resonates with you, but it it feels like the thing where your friend starts dating someone, they're really into them, and like they're sort of reluctant to bring them around the friends for some period of time, and then they do, and like they simultaneously want their friends to like their new girlfriend, of course, but also if they're insecure, they get jealous Mm -hmm. if you like the girlfriend too much or you get along too well with the girlfriend because then, like, they feel like they're in the position where actually my friend and my girlfriend like each other more than either of them like me. Mm. That, to me, that sort of basic insecurity about where he stands in relation both to his friend and to his wife would be the thing that would make this make sense. 
And, you know, and of course, Polixenes and Hermione both, <laughs> you know, like they're giving each other a lot of compliments, right? Polixenes says to Hermione, oh, oh, my most sacred lady, temptations have since then been born to us for in those unfledged days, i.e. in the days of youth, you know, when he and Leontes were, were really close. In those unfledged days my was my wife a girl. Your precious self had not had then not crossed the eyes of my young playfellow, i.e. Leontes. Like, you know, this is a friendship that goes way back and has these deep roots, but it precedes sort of erotic love. So to me, it's a it's a fear of displacement. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple things going on here. I agree that that is definitely a huge part of it, which is... They had these carefree days before basically women and marriage and sort of the responsibilities of fatherhood and ruling have sort of come into their lives. That's for sure. But in the passage that you just quoted, I think it's kind of amusing to read that dialogue. And um, it's lighthearted and fanciful, but it's also a bit flirtatious, right? Mm -hmm. If you're reading it the wrong way and you're primed to be jealous— or a sort of a jealous temperament, I think that this is going to turn into a complete disaster in the same way that, you know, it's sort of like he's picking up on subtext that he's injecting into this, what's meant to be lighthearted banter because he has asked Hermione to persuade Polixenes to stay for longer. He is imputing now this sort of erotic element to it, which is not actually the intent. I mean, everybody loves Hermione. That's the stunning thing about this play, is that she is universally sort of adored by the courtiers, by her servants, by just people in general, by her friends, and even by, like, the jailer, basically, when she's sent to prison. And so I think the whole reason that Leontes turns to her to persuade Polixenius to stay is because she's so eloquent and beautiful and winning and has a way with words— and yet he's ends up punishing her because he misunderstands what's going on. So I think there's also that element of it. And, you know, so I, I do think it's this displacement. I think it's this question of what he's misperceiving and his own insecurities around that. Like he just doesn't, you know, doesn't get it. And then I also think there's something kind of unhinged about the guy. It doesn't take much, but that's probably because he might have always been a little bit like this, which I think is is kind of an interesting thing to contemplate as well. Yeah, I mean, we don't get a window into his prior personality, other than a few lines about, you know, of Polixenes talking about how good friends they were, and Camilo, at the, I think it might even be the first lines in the play or close to the first lines in the play, Camilo's talking about their old friendship. They were trained together in their childhood, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But we don't, yeah, we don't get much of a, a window into that, into who he was before this set of actions. Other than, I would say, the template and the sort of language that he slides into almost immediately, right? And I think that's the part where it feels like it's not coming out of nowhere, you know what I mean? In the sense that he is very quick to assume the worst. And one would imagine that that's a pre-existing part of his mentality, not just triggered by this one episode. And, uh, you know, I'll just quote this one passage where he talks about basically poison the poisoning that he's asking camillo to do and then really sort of a metaphor for his own paranoia and jealousy yeah bless am i in my just censure in my true opinion alack for lesser knowledge how accursed in being so blessed there may be in the cup a spider steeped and one may drink depart and yet partake no venom for his knowledge is not infected but if one present the abhorred ingredient to his eye make known how he hath drunk he cracks his gorge his sides with violent hefts i have drunk and seen the spider camillo was his help in this his panda there is a plot against my life my crown all's true that is mistrusted. How came the Postons? So there's this there's this element in that speech where Leontes is he almost doesn't realize, obviously, definitionally, how delusional he's kind of being, mm-hmm. but it didn't take much to sort of push him in that direction, which suggests to me that there is a thread here of of insecurity that isn't just about what happens literally on the page of the play. It's sort of a pre-existing a pre-existing condition that he starts the play with and gets drawn out by 
this incident, yeah. if that makes I'll, sense. I'll also say, Will, to your point, you know, another thing that we do get access to is we see, right, we see how quickly he falls into this. And then we also see when there's the report of Hermione's death, he turns on a dime to regret his actions, right, or to regret what, what he's done. He hears of Hermione's death and he immediately says, Apollo is angry and the heavens themselves do strike at my injustice, right? And... I mean, it, it of course depends on on how an actor would would play this character, mm-hmm. but sure, there's the reading that this horrible thing happens, and that's the only thing that can shake him out of his crazy jealous mindset. But equally, I think it could be that Leontes is, you know, in the way that Othello, and mm-hmm. I think Othello is a great comp for Leontes, which we can maybe talk about more. It may be that, like Othello, he's like this very passionate. Quicksilver mm-hmm. character, and he just oscillates between extremes very quickly. That he's not super stable, and I don't. I mean, we could ask the question of if that means mentally stable, but that's not the sense in which I'm saying the word. I just mean that, like, he's someone who like goes from real highs to real lows, rather than being someone who's like pretty baseline, a little up, a little down. Yeah, I. Definitely think you're onto something there. I was actually reading a little bit about the performance history of this play, and I was struck to, to learn that in one of the more successful stagings of it, the actor for Leontes and the director, uh, and I forget, it was maybe Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, one of the British companies, but basically they consulted a psychiatrist mm-hmm. to basically try and posit what Leontes' diagnosis would be, and then they did research into that condition and went down the the rabbit hole to try and really bring this out. But uh, I think that's maybe one of the easier ways for us in sort of the modern world to access this and to sort of understand it, right? Because it is really mercurial and kind of wild. I mean, his insecurity also about paternity is sort of shot through and it does not take him much to suddenly start questioning even the paternity. I mean, it's it's sort of absurd because he himself acknowledges he and his son, Mamilius, look very much alike. But yeah. he, you know, it doesn't take him much to sort of start reevaluating everything in light yeah. of this mental disturbance that he appears to be undergoing. Even things that are just like obviously true and sort of should be axiomatic, he's willing to suddenly question and swing from one side to the other. Yeah. One other thing, Will, uh, that I think that maybe gives us a little bit of insight into his character, although I would be interested to know from your perspective if this tells us about Leontes as a person or just about whatever the political situation Mm -hmm. is in Sicily. But we've seen a lot of examples of relationships between social superiors and their servants, Mm -hmm. right? And one thing that you cannot say about Leontes' relationship with his various courtiers and servants is they are not afraid to tell him when he's wrong. No, no, definitely (laughs) not. Almost... Almost to a man. I mean, I guess Camilo does flee because he thinks that he's going to be killed. So I guess maybe Camilo would be the one example that stands against this. Although I guess he's also the only one who directly disobeys Leontes, technically. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. this is not a situation where Leontes is going crazy and everyone around him is, is so afraid that they're just going along with his craziness, right? Every single person seemingly immediately reacts to him being like, you're crazy, this is wrong. You know, Antigonus ultimately does take the baby away, but only after he's already protested about how he doesn't want right. to. And you sort of get the feeling that that's mostly Shakespeare needing to get Antigonus out of the picture so that Camillo and Paulina can get married at the end. Right. You know? Right. So anyway, my, my point is, like, I think these are all things that are around the character and they're not exactly direct mm. statements or direct... They're, they're sort of secondary evidence. But yes. I do think that in the in seeing what that relationship is like, if only in seeing how he reacts to Paulina, how he reacts to Antigonus, how he takes Paulina's chiding, or I mean, it's more than chiding, right? It's, it's real Yeah, anger. and he's getting called out. Yeah. And, and so I do think in that you maybe see a little bit of, not exactly a positive side, I don't want to say positive, but... It's clear that this is a guy who has some amount of trust with his Mm. people. So I I don't quite know what my conclusion is off that, but it suggests to me that this is not 
a simple case of Leontes is a unalloyed bad guy. I don't know. What do you think? Am yeah, I making so, sense here? Or? I, don't, I don't know. I think um, in some respects I'd agree with you in that, well, especially in that he appears capable of maintaining relationships with a wide variety of people. You know, not everybody is fleeing and no one is actually trying to assassinate him, you right. know, if in his own court. I suppose one of the challenges related to this character is that he has these qualities which suggest that people aren't afraid to challenge him. And you can take that in multiple directions. On the one hand, you can see him as sort of a mad king in some ways or a character who it's sort of priced in that he usually doesn't go too far, but he's temperamental and has to sort of be talked down from rash decision making. Yeah. And he's not right and left ordering people's executions. On the other hand, he is very quick to accuse anybody that threatens to disobey him, including um, Paulina's husband, Antigonus, of treason at, at, with a very, at a very quick pretext, yeah. with, with very, very little pretext, basically. You know, even the mildest sort of challenge is met with rage. So I think it's complicated, but I think you're on to something in that he's clearly not meant to be a bad guy, in every respect, or he's meant to be a bad guy that gets forgiven by the totally unearned and meritless grace that basically animates the statue of his wife at the end of the play. Well, um, I would, I think the distinction I would make, Will, and again, you can tell me if you think this is off, but I feel like there are people who, you know, will sort of like have a tantrum and then simmer down, and that's their way of working through things, but they're basically mm -hmm. their heart's in the right place or maybe that's not quite the right way of saying it but where it's it's a way of like working through an emotion <laughs> yes and then yes. there's people who will have a tantrum and are like will truly be malicious and it's really just motivated by caprice and by malice and yes. i don't know I, you know of course i don't know but it i guess what i see in this and and what i'm trying to get at with this thing about the relationship with these social inferiors is that I think in the latter case, right, in the case where someone is genuinely, like, malicious in that way, I think you would see a much more beaten down set of subalterns, yeah. right? Like, I think you'd see people who are much more just, like, appease him, so, something where they don't trust that their criticisms will have an effect. Yeah, I... Sorry, I, I don't want to, to be clear, I, I was not expecting to find myself in this podcast taking up the banner of Leontes is actually a great guy and a great king. So no, no. Well, I've, that, I maybe have gone further in this argument than I intended. But. Yeah, I think, I think the only things I would push you on a little bit is um, it can turn into a distinction without a difference, right? If somebody gets filled with rage as part of their way of processing their emotions and threatens to dash an infant's head against a wall and then calms down and is like a little bit more in stable equilibrium. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot depends on whether an infant is nearby in right. the vicinity, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think in that sense, it doesn't really matter terribly much. But on the other hand, I mean, you're right. I think that clearly Leontes is in this situation surrounded by people that are trying to talk him down he's not actually wantonly executing them left and right and by all accounts he appears to be living somewhat chastened after hermione and mamilius's death i mean we can talk about how much he's really changed by the whole experience or not but he's clearly not exactly the same man as he was before this traumatic event now i don't know that that should be a consolation necessarily to anyone if he could turn on a dime and become penitent so quickly uh, and could also turn into a jealous madman just as quickly i'm not sure how healthy or helpful that is for anyone but i do think like he does clearly sustain a level of repentance that people around him find at least moderately persuasive and genuine. Yeah, and I think to your point, Will, you know, to your point about a lot depends on whether or not there's a, an infant around, right? There are serious consequences to Leontes's madness. I mean, I think we can call it madness, right? Or, or at least, at the very least, this caprice, right? This jealousy. He loses his daughter for 16 years, his son dies, and his wife, whom he basically does seem to love, 
is lost to him for 16 years. And like, I think we can have a debate about whether or not she actually dies. I would venture to say no, but regardless, he's without her for mm-hmm. a decade and a half. Right. So yeah. Yeah. This is the thing that's very striking. And throughout the lines of the play, whenever Mamilius comes up, everybody is so grateful and is the much hoped for prince, right? They're so yeah. glad that they have a male heir to succeed. Well, and days. not just a male heir, but a an heir that seems to be admirable. Yes. Right? Yes, definitely. I mean, he's the one who's telling the winter's tale and clearly has great charisma and garners the love and respect of so many people around him in court, a spitting image of his father, so on and so forth. And to lose that is a pretty devastating blow. And it's interesting to think about that in the context of all of the succession struggles that end up happening in Shakespeare's own time and, and you know, and certainly prior to that, where having a male heir is seen as a huge and vastly important thing for the preservation of the state and for the successful reign in a lot of respects. Yeah. So it's just kind of striking to think about it in those terms too. Yeah. Uh, Will, should we move on to our, our next topic? Yeah, let's do it. This is a, a little bit more of a broad Shakespeare topic. It goes beyond the play itself, and it's a little bit more about where we're seeing Shakespeare going in his career or where he has gone in his career maybe. But this play is... It's just, it's interesting reading this play off of Pericles, you know, because when we read Pericles, we had a whole conversation about how it was interesting to see him trying new things. And, you know, I think basically we both thought that that play didn't work almost at all. Mm. Right. But there were some interesting formal and structural elements to it. This play feels like, (laughs) I, I can't think of what an earlier version of this is, but I feel like early on in the Shakespeare canon, right? Like we saw him experimenting with some different ideas, Mm -hmm. uh, some different tropes. And in a lot of those early plays, they didn't really work. And then all of a sudden they kind of crystallized in some of those really great plays, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, in maybe in the way that like the Henry the sixth plays, which I think you and I both enjoyed, but really like are a little messy and all, you know, and don't totally work. But those plays are getting into a lot of these questions about politics and succession and uh, history, right? Like he's doing a first approach in those plays to questions that interest him a lot. And then we get to the Henry the fourth plays and Henry the fifth. And it seems like suddenly it crystallizes and he's really able to address those themes in a more complete and satisfying Mm way. Right. Mm -hmm. I felt and we'll we'll talk more about this when we get into the rankings, but I actually thought this play worked quite well. I pretty much enjoyed this one. And I did think that it felt like whatever he was doing in Pericles and also in, you know, a little bit of the tone of Antony and Cleopatra, though Antony and Cleopatra is, of course, a tragedy. Mm-hmm. It felt like this one kind of crystallized some of this late career stuff that we've been seeing about the magic and... You know, he's interested in these more mature Mm -hmm. relationships. And that got me thinking about artists who transform themselves over the course of their careers, right? Because I feel like there's there are many artists, whether they be filmmakers or writers or whatever, like, right, Jane Austen basically wrote the same book eight times. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that to knock on Jane Austen. Actually, I love Jane Austen. I think she's an incredible artist. A genius. Yeah. Yeah. But she was really concerned with variations on the same theme, right, over the entire course of her career. Now, Jane Austen scholars, don't at me, please. I know it's more complicated and blah, blah, blah. But basically, right, like she's interested in these relationships and these social novels about class and romance in that era of of English history. (laughs) And I, I think you could basically say the same thing about someone like Dickens, right, sort of has a pretty similar set of themes that he keeps returning to over time. But there are also artists who really start in one place in their career making stories about one thing or another and then just radically change by the end of their career. And you can certainly find through lines. I mean, the, the, the two filmmakers that I've really tracked this on, mostly because these are filmmakers that I've made an effort to watch a lot of their movies. You know, I've talked about David Lean 
a lot on the podcast and other contexts, but David Lean started off making the adaptations of Dickens novels, these romance films, basically. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, circa 1957 or something, made this huge change where he went from making these pretty small-scale, intimate movies to these gigantic epics. And then... After that, several films down the line suddenly stopped being interested in those, which are basically about politics, colonialism, these kind of big political questions, and sort of made these fusion movies that are, that are combining the romance of his earlier movies with the epic scale of his great period, in, in, in quotes. Kurosawa, yeah. similarly, like starts off as almost feeling like a neorealist, almost. Like, obviously, neorealism is specific to Italy in some sense, but it has that feel, right? Of like, White, they're yeah. black and white movies. They're very grounded. They're shot in a way that, it, you know, he's concerned with sort of domesticity, with contemporary of that time, Japanese culture, contemporary problems. And then, you know, we did our podcast about Kurosawa and talked about Ron. Mm. And I think that that would be true of a lot of the late period Kurosawa, where his ambitions really spread out, right? Like where he's interested in making these big, colorful very ornately high production value films so sorry that was a bit of a a rant but i'm interested in this transformation of shakespeare where he's gone from where he's really changed what he's interested in i think Mm. do you observe that or does that resonate with you or, or do you see it as being all sort of in the continuum so i think that there are a lot of different themes that i think he returns to or are minor chords in earlier works that get more and more emphasis as time goes on. But if I were to sort of track the evolution of the the artist, right, I think that he goes from doing a sort of range of low comedies and the drama of the histories and high politics that you were recounting. And then he's refining more and more of sort of the psychological and social themes that the histories bring out and that the comedies in their own way center upon. And then when he gets to the period of the problem plays, he's written a lot of his major classics and he's more interested in experimenting with form and theme. So you get the great anti-war, almost uh, like Johnny got his gun style Mm -hmm. stuff in Troilus and Cressida. Then you also get the zany, more madcap comedies. Merry Wives of Windsor is something that's like... could be read as a throwaway, but also an effort to just break out of the strictures of doing the marriage comedies in exactly the same way every time. And Mm -hmm. then similarly, you know, you get to Anthony and Cleopatra, and it's clear he just wants to write beautifully written, extended verse between these two characters. Uh, And so I guess I see commonalities. Like, I see the, the continuity between this one and Othello, I also see a little bit of maybe the spiritual dimension of this play, a little bit of an echo of Merchant of Venice, too, in that it, it has Interesting. both a... Um, it has Say both more. A, well, just in the sense of um, Merchant of Venice, right, it's all about kind of the dialectic between... Not all about, because there's a lot going on, and maybe the, the most interesting parts aren't even about what I'm about to say, but uh, there's a dialectic, right, between law and grace in that play. And mm-hmm. in this one, too, there is sort of a a sense of really, really bad behavior and bad things happening. And by all rights, it does not feel like it's going to be a comedy for three acts at all. Despite a few moments of laughter, it's pretty heavy and pretty serious and pretty brutal, to be honest, for the first three acts. And then the last two acts are lighter, more comedic, but also quite emotional and sort of yeah. bring you to this point of the transcendent movement of the statue is the moment by which you can call it whatever you want, surreal, fantastical, magical, literally magical in the moment, miraculous. But clearly Shakespeare is interested in drawing out themes related to meritless salvation and forgiveness. Even if like the characters aren't all that appealing all the time, that's kind of one of the things that he's exploring is how people all you know how how things can end well for people even when they've done bad things and are trying to repent. That's not yeah. to go too far down that rabbit hole, but there are certain continuities in themes, but I think it's a much broader palette than many others. And I think when you get to these these later plays, 
he's clearly interested in exploring a different set of history and exploring a different set of realms and topics and themes. And he wants to imbue his characters with a more diverse array of psychology or psychological profiles and have them kind of smashing up against each other. So in that way, I actually see this as like maybe one of the better quote-unquote problem plays where people struggle to categorize it, but I think it really works. It works in a way that's you know significantly better than Measure for Measure or Troilus and Cressida. You know, I appreciate what he's doing here, and it all it all kind of feels like it makes sense, even though it makes very little sense if you were to describe it to somebody offhand. Or maybe it would be jarring to see if it wasn't done exquisitely well in the theater. But it, it feels like it, it, it comes together to me. Yeah, I guess what I perceive here, I, 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 I see what you mean, Will. I th- and I think that's true. I think that he is dealing with themes. So maybe what I'm talking about is more of a tonal shift or, yes. or, a, or a shift in focus, but not necessarily a shift in, in what he thinks is important. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like Basically, after Macbeth, right? The plays we've done after Macbeth. Antony and Cleopatra, Pericles, Coriolanus, now this play. Feels like between Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra, there is a sudden shift to something that is more mature. I I don't mean to say mature in the sense of better, Mm -hmm. to be clear. But what I mean is like, it feels like suddenly we are seeing things from the perspective of someone who is more than middle-aged, right? He's interested in Leontes and Hermione's reconciliation after 16 years. And Mm -hmm. he's interested in the clash between like Leontes in the present day versus who he was in the past. He's interested in the mature love of Antony and Cleopatra and how different that is from the infatuated love of Beatrice and Benedict or Hero and Claudio. Right, He's interested in the battered General Coriolanus who is rejected by the people rather than the triumphant, yes. you know, the triumphant Henry V young stud king, right? Yeah, I think he's interested in, I think mature is a good way to put it. I think he's interested in maturity, aging, and not just in terms of instructional manuals of how to be a good prince, right? Yeah. He's not as interested in angry young men anymore. I I do think that that is true. The other thing I'd say is he's formally, basically from sort of the height of his powers with the four big tragedies through now, and I think we'll see more of it with The Tempest, you know, as we look ahead, he's been experimenting with form and tone. And you can see a little bit of this earlier. There's always a little bit of commingling of tragedy and comedy in even his bleakest works from time Mm -hmm. to time, maybe with the exception of Othello. Like, Othello is not a laugh riot, nor are the first three acts of this play. But then he sort of embarks in this turn. What's striking to me about that is he's willing to shake up your expectations a little bit. Even though A Winter's Tale, like literally the title is meant to be, it's it's supposed to be a little fantastical, you know, and not necessarily have a realistic tone or approach, but he's clearly willing to experiment and subject his audience to different, even if the plot elements are similar, the themes are similar, he's willing to do it in a way that's a little bit more um, in your face or challenging, not in a way of just kind of trolling you, but he, he's found a way of blending and experimenting with like tone and style yeah. and presentation and pacing that I think is more mature and more interesting. And he's, he's not just interested in the stories of like high action and daring that characterized his more swashbuckling political thriller style work. We spent a, the whole first third of this podcast talking about Leontes' psychology But imagine that, plus the subtlety and sort of amusement and fantastic nature of a little bit of Midsummer Night's Dream, a little bit of Much Ado About Nothing. Like, all of that's going on here. I'm not saying that it's necessarily better than some of those plays, which we'll get to in the rankings, but it is formally adventurous in that sense. he's, He's doing more in a more compressed time frame. You know, I think that's kind of impressive. And, you know, when you're looking at him, I think of all of the directors you mentioned, but I also think of people that are just able to shift between genre and style quite readily. Like, I think of Scorsese doing, like, Goodfellas and then doing Age of Innocence, right? Yeah. Or, like, Kubrick 
doing everything from Paths of Glory to Eyes Wide Shut to Full Metal Jacket. To you Doctor know, Strange Love, to Doctor too, Strange right? Love, like, such right? a wide wide range of and, you tones know, Spartacus, and genres. Though, though he disowned that one. But yeah, there's a sort of gift there of being able to move between these things. And reading this one, I sort of understood what he was trying to do with some of the others. Not always with the same themes as this play, but I understood with some of the ones where he's trying to shake things up and experiment, I kind of got it a little bit better this time. Yeah, it was like he needed the reps to kind of figure out how to make it work, right? Exactly, exactly. The other ones, it's like there's always something a little bit off, even where there's some good stuff. You know, measure for measure, there's some interesting things going on there. It probably would be interesting to watch it. It was interesting to read it. But it's not necessarily um, firing in all cylinders. Yeah. Let me ask you, Will. This thought only just occurred to me. This isn't something I pre-planned, so I'm I'm sort of trying this out on you. Mm -hmm. But one thing that occurs to me about the tone and the shift in the tone, and I think this probably goes to some of what we're talking about, about the maturity of it, right? Of, Of it being the perspective of maybe an older and more forgiving personality is I feel like in the earlier plays, like prior to this shift we're talking about mm-hmm. around Macbeth, basically, I feel like Shakespeare's kind of merciless with the audience. Yes. In the sense that he will not let you rest content or have illusions about the nature of people and the nature of the people in the plays. Right. There's this amazing line that I will mm-hmm. never, ever forget in Gravity's Rainbow, where, and I don't remember who says it or why, but someone says, so far and no farther, is that it? You call that living. <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of what is remarkable about Shakespeare in those, in that first two thirds, really, of his career, where he's like, what, you're only willing to go so far? Let me show you really how far it goes. And here, I mean, even, you know, you talk about grace in The Merchant of Venice, and that's like an amazing speech by Portia, but Mm -hmm. how does it end? Shylock is totally forced to give up his culture and forcibly converted to Christianity, and then there's the scene with the rings, which I still don't understand what what that's about. So, (laughs) whereas it does feel like here we're seeing him, he's like willing to be a little bit more forgiving, maybe. I don't know. Does that resonate with you or? Yeah, he does. I mean, there's enough, I feel like at times there's enough subtext in this play or sort of hints. There are questions around how much Leontes has changed or like the suggestion that it's all fantastical, even the title of the play is sort of a wink and a nod at the audience that like life doesn't really work out like this. But, I mean, it's like yes and no, right? Because, like, the first three acts of this are as brutal, if not more brutal, than anything that happens in Merchant of Venice yeah. in some respects, right? At least in terms of what's being contemplated. I suppose it would be worse in the sense of, like, it would be unequivocally worse than what happens in Merchant of Venice or Othello if he was actually burning them at the stake. So in that sense, I do think he is more merciful and that he's not showing us those things. But it is like pretty unrelentingly bleak, honestly, Yeah. in that sense. And I think he wants to sort of show us that it's not just that. So yeah, I agree with you. I think he's maybe, maybe he's become more forgiving in a sense. I also think that he's become more, um, he's willing to sort of confront you with, with more sort of grotesqueries, but maybe a little more willing to pull the punches and recognize that, that good art doesn't necessarily always have to involve confronting you with people being smothered with pillows or racking up the highest body count. Yeah. You know, which I I think some of those plays with high body counts I love, by the way, and I think are the great masterpieces. But uh, I do think that there's something to be said for trying a slightly different thing. Well, and he holds out just more, I think you've used the word grace, and I think he holds out more of a possibility of, of redemption here than in a lot of those earlier yeah, plays, and, right? and I think we'll see more of that, too, as we go on yeah. um, as well. So, James, you know, I think we've been leading up to it, but but how do you rank this one? Well, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, I, I actually think this play works pretty well, Will. Uh, it's unusual. It is working in kind of a new angle. I don't think it quite cracks the top half for me, but that's mostly because the plays in the top half are so good you know top half we've done 34 i really make the line right now at antony cleopatra 
between Antony mm. Cleopatra at 15 and Richard II at 16, where I think everything above that line is basically, in my mind, unequivocally great. Maybe mm. not Minister Night's Dream, but we'll leave that aside. And then there's a whole set of plays after that that I, I still like, but I think are maybe not quite perfect. Mm-hmm. I think I would place this basically between... It's really a question of, do I place it above or below Richard II? Because I think it's definitely working better than Troilus and Cressida overall, mm-hmm. which is my number 17. And I think, I mean, it's been a while since we read Richard II. I think that was fairly early on. But I think probably this one I would place above Richard II. So this, mm-hmm. this I think, is going to slot in at number 16 for me. And, you know, and why why do I place it above Richard II? I think mostly it's because Richard II, as, as we discussed at the time, really interesting play, really interesting to think about, but not that dramatic. And I think this play is, is a more complete story, even if maybe it's not as philosophically significant as Richard II. So anyway, long story short, it's slotting in at my number 16 between Antony and Cleopatra and Richard II. Um, what about you? So I've been wrestling with this one because it's, I think this is above the cutoff for me as being a really, really excellent piece of work. The question for me is actually grappling with a similar set of plays. Like I am not going to put it above Much Ado About Nothing, um, which is my number 13 spot, just because I think Much Ado About Nothing is really sublime in its comedy and is really sparkling and amusing in that way. And I just don't think this one quite reaches that level. Richard II, like this is where it gets tough. I think that there's some stuff in Richard II that's really brilliant. Some of the most intriguing and fascinating monologues in Shakespeare. And then there's Henry IV Part Two, which I have an ambivalent relationship with because I think some of it's excellent but it all really feels like it should be folded into henry the fourth part one mm-hmm. so part of me is inclined to put it at the 16 spot but i actually think i kind of enjoy this one slightly more than henry the fourth part two the only question is do i think it's better as a play and in that case i think i'm gonna have to say Ugh, it's tough Suspense. Suspense. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to say that it is... I'm going to say that it is better than Henry IV Part Two. Controversial pick. I, I mean, and Richard II, I mean, it's tight for me, honestly. I genuinely am ambivalent, but I think Richard II is slightly more compelling. So in that note, it's my number 15 spot. And, uh, and... Who, would, who would you anoint the MVP of this one, Will? Gosh, so great bunch of great characters here. Surprisingly good amount of options for this. I mean, we didn't even really talk about Autolycus, who is the great pickpocket con man character in it. And he's very funny at a variety of points. We didn't even bring him up, which just tells you something about there's there's a number of good folks here. I I think I'll go with Camillo. Mm, Okay, you know, just just because he's the bro you need and you want in this particular instance. Though, you know, there's a case for Paulina as well. So what about you? I actually, um, you said there's a case for Paulina, and indeed, Paulina is my choice. Another character that we basically did not talk about at all on this podcast, and I I think, Will, at some point it might be amusing to just go through and and have a mini-sode where we just dedicate it to all the undiscussed MVPs in our plays. But Paulina, just a really strong character, and and definitely, I mean, I think Camillo's like this too, um, and it's perhaps no surprise that the two of them get together at, at the end of the play. Mm-hmm. But Paulina, just very, very strong character, totally unafraid to tell Leontes that he's wrong and how it is, and has a couple great speeches in that vein, totally like true to her friends, true to herself. Uh, I thought she was a great character. I, I think, look, the big consideration, I think, is like Leontes is such a major character, right? Yes. Like it's, it's, this stuff is all happening around Leontes. So I think it is, in a way, difficult to not go that direction with this. But I feel like both Camillo and Paulina are, even though we have to react to Leontes, I think both Camillo and Paulina are sort of stronger, more integral 
or more maybe more integrated characters than he so, is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, Paulina is um, Paulina's a great character, and frankly, probably a better character than Camillo in terms of the writing and sort of the moral center. I mean, she's kind of the moral center of the play when you come yeah. down to it, right? I view them, Camillo is definitely in the vein, and we should do a pod just on the, the best friend characters, mm-hmm. uh, or sort of the loyal manservants of Shakespeare. But Camillo is in that sort of rich tradition of the Horatios or the Mercutios of the world, but maybe a little less in technicolor, frankly. But, you know, certainly a a good character that behaves honorably and is intriguing. I think, like, if you're looking for the great, some of the great lines, I think you have to look at Leontes. And if you're looking for, like, a really juicy role that is the moral center of the play, you got to go with Paulina. So, yeah, that's a very defensible choice. So, James... Do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for our Bard Flies listeners this week? Well, Will, and by, by the time our readers hear this podcast, we will probably be fully out of award season. But I have been watching a lot of movies, trying to basically see all the, all the movies that are up for awards this year. And I have seen, look, there, I'm always dissatisfied with the movies every year but there's always a few that really resonate with me the one that i have seen most recently that i think i would recommend is a film called the worst person in the world i believe it is a norwegian film directed by Joachim trier and it is set in oslo it's a story of a young woman who it's essentially like a modern romantic comedy mm. but it does not conform to our ideas about what the romantic comedy genre should is. be Mm-hmm. Or, or historically has been. And I, mm-hmm. I find the movie really compelling, most of all because I feel like it expresses really, really, really nicely the sense, and I think, Will, you'll, you'll understand what I mean here, of like the sense of like coming of age in the particular time that you and I have come of age in. Like the, this character is like goes from 27 to 30 over the course of the film or something mm-hmm. like that, maybe a little past 30. And coming of age in this period of time when simultaneously there are almost no limitations on us, but also no guidance and yes. no precedence. And, yes. and like the, the sort of the opportunity and the confusion and difficulty of that. Yes. So I think it's really nicely done. It's like, you know, like a lot of movies, it sort of gets a little mushy in the second half before it comes back to where it wants to go. Mm-hmm. But like really, really well done. Good script, great performances, and I, I think expressive of something modern and contemporary mm-hmm. in a way that very few films succeed at being. That's great. What's the title? One more time. That is The Worst Person in the World, directed by Joachim Trier. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, we'll be tackling another late romance with Cymbeline. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line.